Good morning, everybody. That was weak. Okay. Um, but I still love you anyway. So we are glad you are here. And if you would open your Bibles to the book of Psalms today, Psalm 19. Brought a few books with me today. And these are just a few of the things that I have been uh, devouring over these past several weeks. Try to get ready for this uh, one message. And so um, today we begin a series, a series entitled, We Can Trust the Bible, that what we hold in our hands, this is paper, I don't know if you know this, this is a, a Bible, um, it's paper Bible, many of our Bibles look like this, um, known as a phone or an iPad, but this is God's Word to us, this is the Word of God infallible, inerrant, God communicating to us in His Word. And so we want to begin today by uh, looking at um, the Word of God and how do we know that this is the Word of God? How do we know that what we hold in our hands, that this Bible is truly God's Word? That's the task for today. Next week we will deal with interpreting the Bible, just some pitfalls and some dangers, some things that we have seen in our culture. Is, is uh, the Bible kind of irrelevant, even though it might have been the Word of God in one moment? Is it irrelevant for today? And the answer is no, but we want to dive in and deal honestly with some of the objections around interpretation next week. And then the following week we will deal with, is the Bible sufficient to care for the human heart, to sustain the soul, to deliver on its promises, to revive and to bring joy and peace and hope. And so that's our three weeks that we'll uh, go at it. So today's a tall task and we're going to go pretty quickly through a lot of things. The aim today is that our hearts would be deeply affected by the glory of God and that we would love Christ more. But it, to get there, we're going to have to go through our nuggets. And so we're going to deal with our heads and we're going to deal with a lot of things and we're going to run through it. So I know you're like, good night. I just woke up and we're, we're going to think. Okay, yes, we're going to think. Um, so uh, that's the plan. And then the prayer is that after we end this, there will be just a, a great rejoicing that God, the God of the universe, has spoken to us as a people. And so I want to pray. Um, and as I do, I just want to also include in my prayers a prayer for our a team. This is a... a a pull off of Facebook, and this is a small team that we have sent out with your generous, regular, faithful giving week in and week out. We have sent this team. It is, in case you can't see all the faces, that's Pastor Travis, who's kind of, you know, horizontal there, leaning in, and then uh, Christina Cheeseman in the front, and then you have uh, Brooke Gallagher, and, or Gallagher, and I knew that, I just ugh, blew it is what I did. And Heather Gregg, and we also have Chris Castorena in the hat back in the back. And so they have gone to go and to love on some of our international workers who have just recently been removed from China because of intense persecution, and now they find themselves in Malaysia uh, serving in a seminary there to carry the gospel uh, to pastors and to that region alike that the gospel would go forth through his church. So... Uh, they are there to encourage. They had massive layovers, 24 hours in L.A. that they had to like spend, spend time in the floor. And there was a picture that Travis sent me of you know all of them just sprawled out everywhere. And so just pray. Pray that God would encourage them, build them up, and use them to build up others. And so 
Let me pray, and then we will uh, dive at this together. Father in heaven, you are faithful and true. You are beautiful and beyond compare. There is no one, nothing that rivals your glory, your sufficiency, your beauty, your sustenance, your all-satisfying power, your ability to change and create and to remake and make new. And so, Father, we come here desperate and dependent. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot fix the heart of our neighbor. We cannot change our spouse or our children. We cannot change the city. And so we come and we just bow our hearts before you and we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, through your word and through your people, that God, you would change us and then use us as instruments of love to communicate your life-changing message to the world. Father, please, come, move, work, change us. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. We have a lot of resources out there. I just wanted to uh, let you know of a few things that I'll be kind of diving into. R.C. Sproul has this little book, Can I Trust the Bible? Um, That was one book that I looked at. I ordered several of these that are out in the foyer, Why Trust the Bible by a man named Greg Gilbert. Uh, I highly recommend this. I'll be referring to it. There's this little pamphlet by a man named Randy Pope. Is the Bible the Word of God? And so I found that extremely helpful running out of shelf room here. Then we have Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. Can we take the Bible literally? Then we have The Case for Christ. Um, You might know Lee Strobel, uh, atheist journalist of the Chicago Tribune that tried to disprove Christianity and his heart toppled and he fell in love with Jesus and he believes the Bible is the Word of God. And probably the most helpful book that I have read is this book by John Piper, A A Peculiar Glory. And I think it does the best, most systematic, uh, God-centered trek through answering a lot of our questions of, is this book, this Bible, the Word of God? Can we trust it? So we have several of those out there. We also uh, use several things online. A man named J. Warner Wallace, uh, his cold case Christianity, uh, just a lot of different apologetics, a man named Stephen Lee. Um, and so as we go through some of this, I just want you to be encouraged that the, uh, the evidence out there for the, the Bible being the Word of God is replete, and we are standing upon strong shoulders of not just blind faith, but faith accompanied by reason. Now, when we stand here and we ask this question, can we trust the Bible? And now we definitively say we can. That's the title of the series. We can trust the Bible. We all come standing in a spot. John Piper in his book articulates that we're all standing somewhere. Sometimes you know where you're standing, sometimes you don't. If you're a sleepwalker, you're standing somewhere, but you might not be cognizant of where you're, sleep, where you're walking or standing. But you're still standing someplace. We all approach the Scripture standing someplace. We either believe it is the Word of God. We either come to it saying that we have a ton of questions. We either have a background that says it's completely false and a farce. It has no historical backing. We come at it that it is ludicrous. It's, it's just something that is figurative. We, we come at it in some way, shape, or form, but we have a position 
It's irrelevant. I don't care about it. Whatever, you still have a position and you're standing in it. And so as we stand, we also come with a lot of baggage. We come with a lot of baggage. People who have been hurt by people misusing this. People who have been hurt by the church. If people are going to treat me that way who believe in this, I don't want this. People whose desires and lifestyle do not align with the Bible, and so they want nothing to do with it. Or, they have relationships or close friends, and those lifestyles don't align with the Bible, and so now they're not sure whether they want the Bible. People who have genuine questions and want some genuine answers. We've got all kinds of things that kind of come into this in this very moment. And we ask the question, is this book, the Bible in which we hold in our hands the Word of God, infallible, inerrant, able to be trusted? And so, I remember in college, I went to a small liberal arts college. That's, that was its uh, title. It was liberal in its view of the Scriptures. It did not believe the Bible was the Word of God. I did not know that at the time. I'd never, I didn't know anybody thought differently that the Bible, surely it's the Word of God. That's just in a given. But you show up at this school, it wasn't that case. Instead, I sat in a religion class which was required and I began to have Old Testament professors began to wax eloquent about this thing called J-E-D-P and how they began to take the Old Testament and Swiss cheese it like crazy. J stands for Yahweh or Jehovah, E, Elohim, D, Deuteronomic, and then P, the priestly material. And they began to take the Old Testament and say, this goes here and this goes here and this goes here and this goes here. And you can't believe it's true. You just got, it's been changed over time. And so we've got some true things in it, but you can't just believe it. And so it hit me like a deluge. Do people really believe this thing? Everything began to shake. I began to watch people drop like flies. People who came in loving Christ, and all of a sudden, this sense of sowing seeds of doubt began to erode their hearts. Was I going to be next? Was the question. And I tell you, some saw it as enlightenment. This was, this was the new way. I've now been enlightened. I've gotten smarter. I now see what is really real. Before I was naive. Now this is true enlightenment. Pastor John Piper said it this way. So yes, I still hold the basic view that my parents did and that Christian church has held through its whole history until the streetlights of the enlightenment began blinding people to the stars and luring people away from the brightness of God's glory. That's what I was watching. Under the banner of academic excellence and smartness, the glory of God was beginning to be eclipsed. This human enlightenment light shone on and all of a sudden God became to be diminished and human prowess and ability began to be heightened. And Can we trust the Word of God? I saw people really close to me, still to this day, not walking with God because they heard no other argument. The more I studied, however, the more I found that what I was being sold was a bill of goods. It was not true. There are reasonable arguments that the Bible is the Word of God. 
Tim Keller in his book, A Reason for God, begins to tell about a similar journey from a woman named Anne Rice. And in Tim Keller's book, this woman, Anne Rice, she was raised Catholic. She lost her faith at a secular college, which is very common. Go away to college. They fill you with all this stuff. You're not grounded in the local church that tells you something different. And then all of a sudden, it does seem like enlightenment and your faith begins to dwindle. This is her story. Lost her faith at a secular college, married an atheist, became wealthy writing novels about Lestat, a vampire who was also a rock star. So, it began to shock the literary world when Rice announced that she surrendered her life to Jesus. Why did she do this? Because she endeavored to find out, was this Jesus historical, and can the word that he believed was the Bible, the word of God, can it be trusted? She was being told that it wasn't historically reliable. Here's the quote. Some books, specifically she's speaking about the subject from her non-Bible-believing colleagues, some books which were no more than assumptions, piled on assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no data at all. The whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which had floated around in liberal circles, I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made in those books. Not only was it not made, but I discovered in this field some of the worst and most by a scholarship I've ever read, atrocious I think was the word, scholarship that I've ever read, end quote. And so now we come, and I remember at the same time that I was also walking through all of this deluge of material, God was doing something in my heart. My sophomore year of college, I got in a Bible study. And I remember for the first time in this Bible study, for myself, seeking out the Scriptures and just laying my heart before the Lord. It was not academic, it was just discipline. It was, I want to be with Jesus and I need to be with Him regularly and I need people to keep me accountable to do so. And for my sophomore year, I just remember multiple times being on my knees, open Bible, working through this Bible study, and God was moving in my heart. Affections began to rise. I began to not go to... Dinner at times because I was reading this, which is a big deal for me. I like to eat. I would not go to intramurals at times, which is a big deal because I love sports. Because I was, I was reading and devouring the scriptures. Something was happening, not the academic, but something was happening in the heart. I was beginning to see what I couldn't see before. It's the beauty of the glory of God in Christ. I began to see John Piper talks about this in his book, A Peculiar Glory. He says, that is what was changing to meet the challenges. This was not an intellectual effort. Seeing is not an effort the way thinking is. It happens. You may need to exert yourself to walk up to the edge of the Grand Canyon, but when you get there, seeing's not the work. You may need to travel to the Alps or the Himalayas, but when you get there, seeing is not an effort. It's given to you. I did my walking and my traveling. That's what education is. But I did not make myself see. And that is why I say it is not as though I was holding on to my view of the Bible, but rather that view was holding on 
to me. Or God was holding on to me. By making the view supremely compelling. If you're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or rafting down the Colorado River inside the canyon, as Piper did in summer of 2012, it is proper to say you are being held by the view, the vista, the sight. This is what the Bible was doing for me. It was holding me. I was not holding it. That was my story. Being held by the view of the glory of God in the Scriptures. And so, I want you to be encouraged that the book you hold is God's Word. It's the God of the universe lovingly speaking to us. Carl Henry says this, God's revelation, God's act of revelation revealing Himself is the act thereby He loves His sinful creatures so much that He forfeits His own personal privacy that His sinful creatures may truly know Him. What that means is that God did not stay hidden. He made Himself known. And that's what we have in the Scriptures. Now, as we ask this question, we just need to, we're going to kind of bullet through how do we have some sense of confidence that the Bible is the Word of God. Randy Pope, in his little pamphlet, Is the Bible God's Word? lays out several different categories. I use those categories and kind of fill them out from different readings. Number one, the Bible's incredible unity. The Bible's incredible unity. Written over 1,500 years, over 40 authors from different continents writing on controversial subjects where contradiction could be high, yet there is great unity no contradiction, and the only explanation is behind the 40 authors, there's one author, God Himself, creating massive unity in the Scriptures. Different perspectives, but massive unity. Is the Bible God's Word? We also have historical accuracy. We have archaeology that begins to attest to what the Bible attests to in history, geographically. Let's take, for example, Jericho. In the 1930s, there was a, a great archaeological find of an ancient city in the very spot which was believed to be Jericho. Then they found a vase. You might say vase. I say vase. They found a vase, and on this vase, it has written on it, Jericho indicating this was the ancient city of Jericho. And as they begin to uncover and peel back the layers of this city, they begin to see that the walls did not fall in, which is what you would expect if they were attacked from within and the city crumbled because of outside impulse. What happened is that the walls literally fell outward. And yet there was still access, they saw. By whoever was coming into that city, the walls fell outward in such a way that there was a way to get inside the city. All in perfect accord with the biblical account. An archaeologist named William Albright says this, Discovery after discovery has established the accuracy of the innumerable details and has brought increased recognition to the value of the Bible as a source of history. Archaeology has only gone to confirm the Scriptures and not tear it apart. What about a third category? You have biblical prophecies. Biblical prophecies. 
Just prophecies about the Messiah alone number around 300. That's over 60 plus individual prophecies in the Bible that attest to a coming Messiah. What we know is that the likelihood of one person fulfilling all of this is one in one followed by 17 zeros. Statistically impossible that one person will fulfill all of these, and yet Jesus did, in accords with the Scripture, fulfill these things. It was this and many other things that led Lee Strobel, hater of Christianity, active atheist, lawyer, journalist for the Chicago Tribune, on this active search to disprove Christianity only to find his heart toppled by the evidence and by the internal testimony of the Scriptures. In this book, Why We Can Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, he says this about another reason why he believes the Bible. The main reason I believe the Bible is true is precisely because I believe Jesus was resurrected from the dead. If Jesus really was raised, not revised, raised from the dead then the only possible intellectually honest conclusion one can reach is that he really is who he claimed to be. If Jesus actually got up from the grave in the way the Bible says he did, then he really is the Son of God. And if that's true, then it makes sense, doesn't it? That he probably knows what he's talking about and therefore we ought to listen to him. Now one thing beyond any reasonable doubt is that Jesus believed the Bible. He believed the Old Testament to be the Word of God. When it comes to the Old Testament, the point is very straightforward. Over and over in His teaching, Jesus authenticated and endorsed it as the Word of God. As for the New Testament, even though it was written years after His days on earth, it too rests ultimately on Jesus' own authority, and the early Christians knew it. In fact, the two main criteria they used to recognize authoritative books were one, that those documents had to be authorized by one of Jesus' apostles, and two, that they had to agree in every particular with Jesus' own teaching. End quote. If Jesus is alive, the Bible is the Word of God. We've had many, I've preached other sermons, articulating evidences, reasons, why we know that Jesus Christ is alive. Now let's get to a little bit more of what the Bible says about itself. The internal testimony of the Scriptures. Jesus knew the Scriptures were God's Word to His people. We have in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul states this, commending it to Timothy. It's a declaration of what the followers of Jesus believed, and that is all Scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All scriptures are God's breathed word to us. And Jesus used those scriptures to place his ministry upon and to teach to others. He says in Luke 24, 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now the question is, what were the scriptures that Jesus was talking about. He did not have the New Testament. The New Testament was not a canon, that is a a defined body of material. All he had was the Old Testament. That was the Scriptures of the day. 
And that was what he believed was the Word of God as a Jewish man, yet the God-man. The Old Testament was the infallible Word of God that testified to him and that he taught. Now, the Bible that Jesus had was arranged a little differently than our Bible. Our Old Testament follows the Greek translation, which is known as the Septuagint, and it follows that order. But in regards to the translation itself, it follows accurately the Bible of Jesus. Now, the Bible of Jesus was arranged a little differently, and we see this, this Hebrew order in Luke 24, 27. And he says this, Jesus says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes on to say in Luke 11, he says, So that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. What does this mean? This begins to speak to a different ordering than our order, but the same Bible. The order that he followed was in three sections. It was the law, the prophets, and the writings. And it began with Genesis and it ended with Second Chronicles. Ours ends with Malachi. The Old Testament ends there, which follows the order of the Septuagint. With his Bible, he states the blood of Abel because that occurs in Genesis. And he states the blood of Zechariah because that is testified to in Second Chronicles. He's stating to us what his Bible looked like. That's also why he said in Luke 24 that he testifies that these scriptures which speak about me are found with the law, the prophets, and the writings. That testifies to the order of the Hebrew Bible that he carried. So same Bible, different order. That's my only point. Now, here's the problem. Jewish people expected to be ruled by a book. That's not a problem. The problem was they expected that that book was closed. It was done. That there was not an... There was not more to be added to the Old Testament. And so, how do we know that the New Testament is the Word of God? How do we know that the New Testament is God's Word? Well, this is what is miraculous. God, when He comes and fulfills all of these prophecies of the Old Testament, He first doesn't come as a book. He comes as a person. He sends His Son Not just any teacher, but He sends the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ Himself. He's the glory of God has come to us. And here's why He's so amazing. John Piper mentions this in his book, A Peculiar Glory. And as he's honing in on the teachings of Jesus, many can just like read the Beatitudes and be like, yeah, man, he's a good teacher. He's saying like, stop hitting each other, you know, turn the other cheek, you know, be kind and say good words, be truthful. These are all good things. You know, marriage is of high value. It's just all great and moral. And then you get to Matthew 7. And in Matthew 7, he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Stop! 
Not everyone who says to me, Jesus, how does he insert himself on the last day as the judge of all things? Where does that authority come from? I thought he was a good teacher. I thought he was a prophet like the other people who've spoken good things. But now he's saying he's the judge of the universe. He'll be there on the last day deciding who's in and who's out. That's what the scripture goes on to say in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is a remarkable glory, a remarkable authority, a remarkable sense that he's not just any other guy. In the hundred years, about 200 years spanning over the time before Jesus came and after Jesus came, there were tons of these kind of messianic type hopes and offers and movements that were out there. And when their leader died... That leader stayed dead, and so the only option they had was to get rid of the movement or to try to find another leader. The Jews were the only ones who made up this crazy idea that their leader died and rose from the dead. But they didn't make it up. It's reality. Because Jesus Christ is the glory of God given to us. He's he's new. This is something totally different. He's the fulfillment of everything to come. He's the Messiah. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so that's why he says in Matthew 5, the Old Testament says this, but I say to you, he has an authority that is on par with the authority of the Old Testament. And yet, he says this also, Mark 13, 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. His words we hang on. The words of life, the words with as much authority as Old Testament scriptures. We know also that he said that I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. So although we do not right now observe a lot of these ceremonial things, it's not because that they were wrong in the moment, but they were temporary to point to the coming Messiah. And now that the Messiah is here, we have a new law. It's the law of Christ. It's summarized by the author of Hebrews when he says this, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is how we got the Old Testament. But in these days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the words of Jesus and those who were around Jesus, His apostles, that began to have this unique authority in this unique moment to create a new canon, a new body of work, this New Testament, not getting rid of the Old Testament. It is the Word of God, but alongside it, the New Testament. Jesus says, you're looking for a sign? Somebody greater than Jonah is here. It's me. He says, you're looking for a sign? Someone greater than Solomon is here. It's me. Jesus was greater. And it just makes us stop. Because if all of this is true, If all of this is true, He lays out before us our only hope is a surrendered life to the One who gave His life for us. I felt like John Piper did a masterful job explaining how the New Testament came to be. That it was not something just created later on in history and affirmed, but it was something that was believed early on in 
the scriptures that the apostles, you know, there were 12 apostles. This was to signify the coming of a new covenant because there were the 12 tribes of Israel when he entered into a covenant with them. It's a new day. It's a new covenant. But I will not go into all the arguments. You can read some of those in these books. But the bottom line is this. We were and we are meant to be ruled by a book. The book is the Old and New Testament. And the Scriptures testify to this, that Jesus was here, but He would leave, and the Holy Spirit would come and would speak, and that His words would be brought to remembrance, and that we would have the Word of God, the words of Christ. Listen to this in John 14, 25-26. Jesus says this, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and He'll bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And so how do these New Testament Scriptures come to be? It's how all of the Scriptures came to be. 2 Peter 1.21 says this, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is one of the first things that my kids and I memorized. And when we were memorizing either scripture or a catechism of some sort, it was, how did we get the Bible? And it is, holy men who are carried along by the Holy Spirit. I still remember their broken English and their, not, their inability to articulate very well, articulating holy men carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so, the good news is that after... Jesus and the apostles, there was not meant to be ongoing revelation. John Piper says it this way, Jesus did not intend throughout the history of the church to keep sending more and more spokesmen with this kind of authority. That is why apostolic teaching is called the foundation of the church, not the ongoing structure. We studied this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It is also why one of the later books of the New Testament refers to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3. We don't have ongoing revelation like the Mormons articulate. We have a closed book, 66 books of the Bible that are God's Word to us. So many people have sought to disprove it. But so many reasonable Individuals putting real tests to the Scriptures come out seeing the Bible as the Word of God. J. Warner Wallace was a cold case detective. He was on dateline for his investigative skills. And he applied those skills to the New Testament. Is this the Word of God? Is it what it claims to be? And without going into all of the Many arguments for it. The answer was unequivocally yes. From its early dates to archaeological corroboration. To early church fathers testifying to its existence. What we begin to have is these individuals even willing to die for what they have written writing embarrassing things about themselves when they sin or when they mess up. You don't write that kind of stuff if you're trying to create a legend. And it's proven sociologically that legends, it takes two generations 
to pass before legend can really take hold because if the eyewitnesses are there, then all of a sudden you don't have something that will carry on as legend. We realize that these were these documents were right in the time of Jesus. So, bottom line is this. Tidal wave of research and documentation to show that the Bible we hold in our hand is the Word of God. Not based upon blind faith, but based upon reasonable faith. Researched by some of the greatest minds and the greatest skeptics. It includes the 66 books of the Old and New Testament. Here's how our elder affirmation of faith, which we pulled from Bethlehem Baptist Church, which the TCT network also uh, holds to, says it this way. Scripture, the Word of God written, section 1-1, it says this. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is the infallible Word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. Infallible, what's it mean? It means it cannot fail. It will do what God intended it to do. Inerrancy contains no error. It does not fail. It's the perfection of Scripture. You also have this idea that this idea of infallible Word of God without error is basically saying the Scriptures are as perfect as He is in its original manuscripts. And so in this little book that I put out there, Why We Can Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, he does the entire book to prove these five points. That we have good translations of those biblical manuscripts. Two, those manuscripts are accurate copies of what was originally written. And the books that we are looking at, the 66, are indeed the right and best books to look at as God's Word. The authors of those documents, number four, really did intend to tell us accurately what happened. And there's no good reason to think, number five, that they were mistaken in what they saw or recorded. <clears throat> now, in this statement that we said, without error <clears throat> in the original manuscripts, it might surprise you that we do not have the original manuscripts. But, as Stephen Lee, a professor of apologetics, tells us, you have to understand, we don't have the original manuscripts or autographs, as it's called, of many ancient writings, any ancient documents. Josephus, Augustine, Aristotle, Plato, Homer's Iliad, Lucidides, Herodotus. We don't have any of these. What we have are copies or manuscripts, manually scripting it down. And to the degree that you have many copies, it gets you back to the original. So the more copies you have, the more you know you have the original. Now, when you look at these other things that we say, these other documents are clearly trustworthy. We can read them. We can put them out in schools. Let's read Plato. Let's read Homer's Iliad. You would think those manuscripts would have to outnumber probably the Bibles because those in our secular world are believed a lot more trusted. Those are the words that were meant to be said a lot more than the Bible. The Iliad has about 1,700 manuscripts. Aristotle has around 49. Plato has seven. The New Testament, by far, has more manuscripts than any other ancient document that exists. Over 5,800 manuscripts. 
the accuracy, the confidence that we have that what we have is the original in its totality is breathtaking. And it speaks to one author, one God, preserving His Word for us. And you might say, but I don't know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew and some of the Bible is even written in Aramaic. I don't know these things. Well, you can also know that in our comparing of translations, you can see some of those differences. And even some good translations, they'll have little footnotes that tell you, or it could say this. All of it is just articulating the very few, probably 0.5% of the areas where there is still discussion. And none of them greatly affect meaning. We have God's Word to us. And it is beautiful. All Scripture, 2 Timothy says, is God-breathed. He did this. He gave us His Word. Infallible. Without error. And if you remember what was said in our statement, it was verbally inspired by God. When the Bible says all Scripture is God-breathed, it means every single word breathed out by God. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal words, plenary, full, inspired by God. Every single word breathed out by God for His glory and our upbuilding. And as they wrote it down, we do not believe, and this is maybe new for some of you, we do not believe in the dictation theory. That when Paul goes and writes something down, Al Mohler helped me with this, he says that God says, I Paul, and Paul writes down, I Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's not how we believe this whole thing happened. There are some times where God speaks to prophets and prophets do write down this But what we have is what the Scriptures have already attested to. That they are not here by the will of man, but the Holy Spirit carried men along, not ripping them away of their personality and who they were in that moment, but using their personalities to give us the infallible Word of God, the supernatural, infallible Word. Word of God. So we believe that every word written is two things. Let's say it's a letter of Paul. It's exactly what Paul wanted to write, and it's what the Holy Spirit wanted him to write. This is the Word of God in which we hold all Scripture. And this is what Peter attests to in 2 Peter chapter 1, and he says this And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke in their personality, in their life situation, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is how the Word of God came to us. And it was Peter who also confirmed that Paul's writings were on par with the Old Testament Scriptures. This is what he says. 2 Peter chapter 3, And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, 
just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I can't believe Peter wrote that. He's the one that talked about crazy things on baptism. But it says, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So if I say, Elijah did this just as my other children did. When I say my other children, it means that Elijah also is my child. And here, when he says the other scriptures, it means his words are scripture. Just as the Old Testament scriptures are, just as the authoritative words of Jesus are, they are the scriptures. Believed to be on par with Jesus' words to us. And so we do believe this. I'll say it again. This is our elder affirmation of faith. We believe that the Bible, consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament, is the infallible Word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. This is why Jesus was so passionate. When they were like, just give me a sign and I'll believe. And he says, you don't need a sign. You've got Moses. You've got the scriptures. And if you're not going to believe that, no way. I'll give you a sign, but it's not going to convince you. You have the word of God. And so, asking Anand to share his testimony on this day, was because you not only have the unity argument, the archaeological historical argument, you not only have the biblical argument where the Bible attests that it is the Word of God, you not only have all of these many things that I've tried to labor and lay before you, but you have the power argument. You have the experience argument. And honestly, this is where you start. It is the self-authentication of the Scriptures. That by reading the Scriptures, hearts topple into love with Jesus inexplicably apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I can give you arguments and arguments all day long about why the Bible is the Word of God and you, if you're a cynic, you will come up and you will say, but what about this? But what about this? But what about this? And you will have plenty of time to say, what about this? But I encourage you. I have given enough in this moment and there are tons of scholars out there where you can dive into some depths I encourage you just to read the Scriptures for yourself. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But read the Bible. Read it with an open mind. And see if God doesn't authenticate His glory, His all-satisfying beauty, His ability as the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one who can get you to the Father, the only one who can satisfy your soul. We believe that the Bible stands on its own. That's why David Coker and Lorraine have labored years to translate the Bible from the original languages into a language that has never had the Scriptures because there is a convinced belief that the Scriptures will do the work itself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to watch over these 15 years almost to see hearts topple, villages changed, 
Churches started because of the conviction that the Bible is the Word of God. And God speaks to us through His Word and changes hard-hearted individuals like me and you and makes us children. And so, dear friends, there is no greater news than this. The Creator of the universe has spoken. And He has spoken beyond giving us clouds and birds and trees and the sun above. He has given us His Son, S-O-N, He has given us His Word. And we have His Word. And the call right now is surrender. Surrender. Allow your heart to surrender. Some of you are carrying a burden that is too heavy. You have tried to live on your own for too long. And if all that I'm saying is true, and it is, then the Word of God is simple. Trust in Christ. There's one treasure that's above every other treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. That treasure is Jesus. And for the joy of having that treasure, you give it all away. There's nothing that rivals Him as the treasure. Surrender. Surrender. Share God's Word with others. Some of you are hopeless sometimes it feels like, and I've been there too, that this person is too far gone, too hard-hearted. I guarantee you people have said that about some of you in this room. And God did it through His Word. People faithfully giving His Word. This is where we have great hope. Our job is not to save people. It's to give them the Word of God. And watch the Word of God do the work. Don't beat them over the head with it. Listen, show, embody the love of Jesus. But in compassion, in love, don't look down upon people who have different worldviews. The only reason you have the worldview you have is by sheer grace alone if you're a follower of Jesus. The hardest thing about this field of apologetics is the arrogance in which people come with their sureness. You can be right and still present it wrongly. And your demeanor becomes the barrier. Oh, how we must be humble and gentle and loving and kind and gracious and listen and care more about their hearts than about winning an argument. But at the end of the day, our hope is in the Word of God. The Word of God. And dear friends, I want you to know, our God loved us so much that He gave us His Word And in His Word, we peel back those pages and we get to behold the beauty of Jesus who gave His life in our place, died on the cross in our place, that anyone who trusts in Him might have eternal life. The Scriptures teach us that it's in Him that we can have eternal life. I end with this. I've made it a practice to try to just listen to the Scriptures I try to daily, I'm not successful, but it's an aim to listen to the Scriptures and to just allow them to pour over me. So not just reading it, but I have an app, the Bible is read to me. Many times I'll do it while I'm running. This attests to the power of the Word of God. 
My wife and I had had an argument. I don't know if you married couples have those things, but uh, we have them every now and then. Had an argument. Sometimes you leave those arguments angry. Sometimes you leave those arguments anxious. I had left that argument a little bit hopeless. What can I do? And I went running. I'm reading through the book of Matthew, allowing it to be read to me. And I just listened to the word. A verse I had heard, I can't tell you how many times. It's called the golden rule. Was read to me in my ears while I'm running and panting. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. And the Spirit of God took my heart, almost stopped me in my tracks, and was like, that's it. I haven't done to her as I would have her do to me. And while I'm running, I'm repenting, Father, forgive me for my selfishness. Forgive me for my self-consumption. And when I got back home, I just stopped and I wrote down, what, how do I want to be loved? And what would that look like to love her and to treat her as I want to be treated? Now that impression from God, which He gives all the time to me, that impression is not the Word of God infallible. That has to be tested and sought through. But it was the application of the infallible word in that moment. And it changed me. God used His word to change me. To show me I needed to be a pursuer of my wife. All because God's word, His infallible word, was pouring over my ears. And God in His kindness allowed it to hit my heart. This is the feast that is yours every day. God speaking to His people in His Word to tell us He loves us that we might behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We can trust the Bible. Let's run after Him through it and in it. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, I love You. I thank You that in this moment you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Psalm 130, I think it is, says, if our iniquities were counted against us, who could stand? Who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness because of your steadfast love. Father in heaven, I ask today that more than any argument or quote-unquote evidence, there would just be the, the self-authenticating power of the Scriptures that would pour out over every heart in this room and that hearts would topple one by one. It's really simple. We want to be a people founded on Your Word because in Your Word, we hear from You. We see Christ and we treasure Him above every other treasure. Father, make us a people of Your Word. Make us a people of prayer. And right now, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, I just ask, I ask that You would change us on the spot. You would work within us. We would do business with You. 
And so in a spirit of prayer, when you are ready, we have two tables in the front, one in the back, where you can take the Lord's Supper. You can get the bread and the cup, go back to your seat, or you can come up front and pray, whatever it is. If God has impressed upon your heart something that you think would be beneficial for the rest of the group, there's cards up here. You can write that down and we will take those and try to present that in different ways to try to encourage the body as a whole. But wherever it is, wherever it is, right now, I want you to know I'll be up front if you need to talk. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to know more about falling deeper in love with Christ and wanting to know how to become a a Christian, this is your time. I want to talk with you. If you just need to be prayed for, there are tons of people around that would want to pray for you. I will pray for you. But let's just take this time with the Lord's Supper and let's enjoy. Let's enjoy the fact that Christ loves us, gave His life for us, and He wants to meet with us in this moment. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take of the Lord's Supper, but surrender your life wholly to Him today. Wherever you find yourself, let's use this time now to adore Christ.